Acts chapter 2, we're making some progress as we're working our way through Acts. We're not quite halfway through chapter 2 yet. Uh, We've just spent a few weeks studying what started on this day, the day of Pentecost, the great event of the outpouring of God's Spirit upon the 120 gathered disciples in the upper room, uh, the the phenomenon that they experienced, the two, the, really the two phenomenons of uh, the um, the rushing, the sound of the rushing mighty wind in the upper room, and then the the uh, small tongues or flames of fire that appeared over each one of them. We focused on the significance of those particular events and and why the Lord chose to give them that experience in that particular format. And then where we're at at this point is that the city, uh, inhabitants of the city have gathered, not everybody in the entire city, because uh, during a great event like the day of Pentecost, uh, the, the population of the city was somewhere in the vicinity of a million people. But a, a large number of people have gathered, some 3,000 people, as we learned later, near the end of chapter 2, have gathered around that upper room, and the disciples have come out to meet with them and to interact with them, and they are, they are speaking in a miraculous way in known human languages to the people that were there, because the people that were there represented nearly every nation known in what we would call the Roman Empire of that day. But the people that are speaking, what's miraculous about it is the people that are speaking have not learned those languages. We have a list that are given. I won't go back through the list, but you see the list in verses uh, 9 through 11 of all of the different languages that were being spoken in a miraculous way. And the focus of what they were saying was they were proclaiming in these languages Supernaturally, miraculously, they were proclaiming the magnificence of God. It's translated in our ESV as proclaiming the mighty works of God, and the, the, the works of God would certainly be included in what they were proclaiming, but um, literally, in the original text, they were proclaiming God's magnificence, which includes both his activities, his actions in this world, which we call his mighty works, and Uh, declarations of truth about his nature, his personhood. So that brings us up to uh, now verse 14, as all of this event has now unfolded and you now have a a large crowd of some 3,000 people that have gathered. You have the 120 disciples who are in the upper room who are now outside of the upper room in the streets of the city. And Peter standing up in the midst of the 120 now is facing the crowd and the next section unfolds. So let's read from verse 14. But Peter standing with the 11 lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, 
and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now at that point, Peter ended his quotation of Old Testament scripture and a specific portion of that, which was from the prophecy of Joel chapter 2. And he begins to proclaim the gospel to the the 3,000 that have gathered there out of curiosity to find what's find out what's going on. And so from verse 22, which we won't get to today, from verse 22 through to the end nearly of the chapter, we have Peter's proclamation that day, his, his what is commonly called Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. What we're going to focus on this morning is his, his citation. Peter opens up his message with two things. One is he, in, he addresses a misunderstanding, which I'll get to in just a moment, that the crowd had about what was going on. And then he quotes Joel, the prophet from the Old Testament. And uh, that portion, of course, starts in verse 17, ends in verse 21. Uh, it's a fairly sizable quotation, and it's substantive. It's, it's jam-packed with important information for us. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide that study into two we won't cover the entire quotation today. Um, next week, of course, we have home church, so we'll be, we'll be in another location and we'll be doing a different study. But uh, two weeks from today, Lord willing, I'll be back and we will focus on the second portion of this. So what I'm going to do for today is I'm going to just try to cover verses 14 through 18, and then we're going to save verses 19 through 21 for our next study. So uh, verses 17 through 18 uh, cover the idea of the outpoured spirit as Joel prophesied about it, and he makes an important reference to the time frame, a special biblical time frame in which this thing, this prophecy Joel was giving would be fulfilled. And then in verses uh, 20, 19, 20, and 21, uh, Joel focuses attention on specific phenomenon that will be observable and will point to the fulfillment of this prophecy in a special way. Things like wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, sun turned to darkness, moon turned to blood, all of that kind of stuff. We will focus on that, Lord willing. We'll dedicate an entire study to that next week because there's so much there that is commonly misunderstood and misapplied. And uh, we've addressed this kind of stuff before in uh, other studies, especially when we were going through Matthew 24 in detail. But it's uh, very helpful to periodically revisit the subject because it's, a, it's a, such a common misunderstanding in Christian circles today, uh, Bible prophecy interpretation circles, so to speak. 
All right, so we're going to focus just on 14 through 18. Peter stands up in the midst of the 11. So what happens here, of course, is that there, there's 120 disciples that were in the upper room. 120 were filled with the Spirit. And 120 leave the upper room to interact with this crowd that's outside. But here in verse 14, the focus is particularly on the twelve. Peter and the 11, because they're going to take the lead. The apostles are going to be, in a sense, the spearhead of God's gospel purposes that are unfolding from this starting point in the city of Jerusalem moving forward. Uh, Just for a moment, turn back one chapter to the beginning of Acts in chapter 1, and uh, we'll see here what Jesus had said to the disciples, to the twelve. Uh, actually, at this point, it was just the 11 because they hadn't replaced Judas at this point. But Jesus, during the 40 days of his appearances to the disciples, said this to them in, uh, in verse 8 of chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, in our study, that's just now happened. P, uh, Jesus is speaking about what's soon going to take place some 10 days after his ascension. But in Acts 2 now, that event has happened. The Holy Spirit has come upon them. They've received power, and that power is purposeful. It's not just random general power for various circumstances in life. It's specific and focused power, and the focus of the power that the Holy Spirit coming upon them and living now within them is going to provide is power to be his witnesses. And he specifies, you will, Jesus speaking to the 11, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and then ultimately to the end of the earth, meaning taking this gospel message to every nation under heaven. And not just for that moment, not just for that generation as we know, this is a, a commission. It's really what we've just read is an extension of what we call the Great Commission that we studied recently in Matthew 28. And that is, this is just the beginning of marching orders, so to speak, that the Lord gives to the church that's going to extend from the day of Pentecost until the second coming of Christ and the end of history as we know it. So what we're seeing in Acts 2 now, as the Holy Spirit has come upon them, And as the disciples have left the upper room and are now standing facing the crowd of 3,000 curious onlookers is we see the beginning of the fulfillment of you will be my witnesses. And the starting point is Jerusalem. So the reason why in Acts 2, now going back to verse 14, we see a, a specific focus on Peter standing with the eleven. Rather than the description Luke could have given here, Peter standing with the 120. Because both were true. The 120 were there. Peter was standing with them as well. But this is just demonstrating the fulfillment of what Jesus had prophesied and told them would happen, which is they would be filled, the apostles would be filled with the Spirit, and then they would become, as I used the imagery of the spearhead of the gospel outreach to the surrounding community that starts in the city of Jerusalem. So Peter stands with the 11. He lifts up his voice and addresses them. So what we see here is Peter takes the lead. There's no, um, there's no quick meeting that takes place here. You've got 120 
disciples pouring out of the upper room to meet the gathering 3,000. And even among the 12 who were apostles, we don't see a quick committee meeting. Like, let's call a meeting of the 12 apostles now. We've got this first golden gospel opportunity. Let's discuss and debate and pray over who is going to be the one of the 12 of us who's going to stand up in this critical moment and, and take the leadership and actually be the one to proclaim the gospel to the crowd. Neither do you see all 12 of them proclaiming at the same time. So you have the 12 there, and then by extension, the 120. But now, even though they've been in, in full proclamation of the magnificence of God in ecstatic utterance under the immediate influences of the power of the infilling of the Holy Spirit, all 120 are silent at this moment, except for one of the 120, except for one of the 12, and that one is Peter, and no one has planned this. There's no reference earlier in chapter one when during the 10 days that they were praying in the upper room that says, okay, when the moment comes, it's gonna be Peter's moment to stand into the, and step into the spotlight. It's just the Spirit's doing. In this moment, Peter is stirred to stand up and take the lead. Now, we only have two possibilities here, and they're interpretive options. And it's not a big deal whichever way we go with this, but I think you'll understand that one is the right way to read the text, and the other is the wrong way to read the text. And that is, either Peter was just doing what he used to do. I mean, we've, we've studied for years now through the Gospel of Matthew, and how many times did we see Peter doing something he probably shouldn't have been doing. You know, kind of like stepping forward, but should have been maybe taking a step back and waiting on the Lord. Um, Over and over and over again, Peter gets himself in trouble. Is this just one more example of Peter kind of getting himself in trouble, getting ahead of himself, getting ahead of the Lord even, and kind of shoving himself into the spotlight when he shouldn't even be in the spotlight? Or is this now the fulfillment, the point of real, full spiritual maturity? Not because Peter flipped a switch and got himself from point A to point B by his own natural progression, but because the Holy Spirit has come upon him, because the Holy Spirit is now living inside of him, and because he is sovereignly appointed by the Lord, to become one of the leaders of the early church. And in this moment, the prominent leader of the early church is Peter actually right in the sweet spot of where he belongs. So those are our two options. Peter's getting ahead of himself like he often did before, or Peter's in the sweet spot of stepping up to take the lead because the Lord has prepped him for this moment The Lord has invested three years in his preparation to get him to this moment. And the Lord has now given him all of the final equipment and qualification that he needs because of the experience of the infilling of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the empowerment to be the Lord's witness on this day. And I'm going to go with the latter one. Peter is, of course, right where he should be. 
But what I do want you to notice is that Peter is the one speaking. John isn't speaking here. James isn't speaking here. The other apostles aren't speaking here. None of the other 120 are speaking here. This is the moment for one who has been appointed and gifted and called and assigned to this responsibility to step into that spotlight and to be the focal point of God's saving purposes through the proclamation of the word of God and the gospel of God. This is God's way. And this is God's pattern. It starts here. Actually, we could look back earlier in, in the Gospels and we could look back even into the Old Testament and we could see that this isn't really something entirely new, that God chooses one to speak for many and chooses one to speak for him. But it is a continuation of that godly pattern, that biblical pattern. And it's important for us to get that, the what I'm going to call the central role in God's redemptive purposes of preaching. The central role of preaching. The reason why this is so important is because what has just happened, the entire group of 120 have been in the same way filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not just out of the upper room people, there's 120 and everybody looked at Peter and saw a flame of fire over Peter's head and the sound of a rushing wind associated just with Peter. All of them heard the sound of the wind. All of them, every single one of the 120 had the the flame of fire over their head. And all of them spoke with other languages as the Lord gave them utterance. They all had, in other words, this ecstatic experience, this miraculous and powerful and amazing experience of the infilling of the Spirit. But when the moment for the proclamation of the gospel comes, 119 are silent and one is speaking. That one is thrust into the spotlight and that one faithfully proclaims the word. This is God's pattern. Now, it continues later in the New Testament. I just want to, without comment, I just want to read these passages for the sake of time. These are um, descriptions by the Apostle Paul of what I'm calling the centrality of the proclamation of the gospel. The first one, if you turn to, um, if you want to join me anyway, or you can sit and listen, um, the first one is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Both of these passages would bear a full exposition, but for the sake of our time, I just want to just want to read them, let them speak for themselves. I'm going to start reading in verse 18. Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks 
seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And the, the other passage, Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Final instructions from a shepherd who is Paul to a young shepherd who is Timothy. A final charge to remember as Paul knows he is about to leave this world, he's going to be executed for the sake of his own proclamation of the gospel. He wants to leave final instructions in the, in the uh, priority concerns of a young pastor named Timothy. Second Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. All right, so what I see happening here on the day of Pentecost, and we're heading back now to Acts 2, is that in spite of, and, and I say in spite of only in the sense of a contrast and a comparison, in spite of the fact that all 120 have just been filled with the Spirit of God and have been ecstatically, miraculously proclaiming the magnificence of God in all of the known languages on the face of the Roman Empire at that time, in spite of that, when the moment comes for the gospel itself to be proclaimed, those other 119 voices fall silent. And one voice, Peter, steps forward and he begins to preach the gospel of salvation. Now, the first thing that he does, and this is something that you know, periodically preachers need to do, teachers need to do, and that is clear up any potential confusion before you can lay the right groundwork for the truth to have a home in the hearts of the people that you're speaking to. And the confusion here that he addresses is this, um, verse 15. For these people, and he's speaking about the 120, for these people are not drunk as you suppose. The reason he needed to mention that is he had, along with the others, heard this statement by the crowd back up in verse 13. But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. So some of the 3,000 that gathered were just simply overwhelmed by the miracle that they were hearing of their of, of hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own native language. 
But others in that crowd that gathered were already mocking the believers and saying, they're just drunk. They're filled with new wine. Now, this is not at all the point of the passage, but I think, I think it's worth for us to at least note the detail. Uh, there are some with good intentions in the wider Christian community that um, want to be convinced that anytime you see wine mentioned in Scripture, that it's got to be non-alcoholic wine because of their concern that believers should never, ever allow any actual alcohol to touch their lips. Uh, Here, what the crowd was saying is they're filled with new wine. And new wine, by the way, there were two categories of wine. Obviously, new wine would imply there's older wine or more mature wine. New wine was the the less... um, yeah, less effective in terms of why you drink alcohol. It was uh, the weaker variety of the two wines. But even with new wine, you could apparently get drunk. You could be under the influence of it. And that's the, the, uh, the very thing that the, some in the crowd that gathered use as, a, as an accus- a mocking accusation against those that were speaking in other languages. And so Peter wants to clarify that. And he says in verse uh, 15, these people are not drunk as you suppose. He understood the implication of the accusation. You're saying we're, we're not filled with the spirit. You're saying we're actually drunk with wine. And his, his logical explanation and defense of their behavior and proving that it it certainly wasn't an issue of drunkenness is that he says since it is only the third hour of the day now we have to we have to have some understanding of how they culturally uh, handled their daily um, timekeeping and in those days in that culture the day started at 6 a.m that was the beginning of a new day and so the third hour of the day was nine o'clock in the morning. So this is not much different. It doesn't mean that it's absolutely impossible for a person to be drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. It's just not the normal time that people, if they're intending to get drunk and if they actually do get drunk, when do people normally get drunk? They, they, it'd be more likely that they'd be drunk at nine o'clock at night or even later than it would be for them to be drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. Now, one possibility is because it was a feast day in the city of Jerusalem, there was wine that was shared as part of the feast. But in the morning, there was on the feast days, no eating at this time of day. The first meal was taken after the third hour, not before the third hour. And so Peter is making an emphasis that even though it's a feast day, even though the Lord allows us to partake of wine as part of the feast and the celebration of that feast, um, it, it's not even the time for the feast to happen. We haven't had anything to eat. We haven't had anything to drink. And so your accusation holds no water. So most definitely they were not drinking. Then he shifts from there to this uh, important quotation of an Old Testament prophet, Joel. And the quotation starts in verse 17, continues, as I said, to verse 21. We're only going to be focused for our study today on the two verses, 17 and 18. Let me reread those two verses. Starting in verse 16. For this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions. 
and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. All right, so what I want us to do first is keep our place in Acts 2. We'll be coming directly back to it. Let's head back to the book of Joel. Peter is well familiar with the prophecy of Joel, familiar enough that on demand in this moment, he was able to quote it. He was able to speak it directly and represent the truth of that prophecy and in some important way apply it to the circumstances that were happening on that day of Pentecost. But let's actually read the prophecy as Joel originally wrote it. We're in Joel chapter 2. Give a moment for make sure everybody finds their way there. If you've gone to Amos, you're a little bit too far, and it's right after, um, let's see here, Hosea, yes. All right, so Acts, I mean, excuse me, Joel chapter 2, and we're going to read starting in verse 28, and it continues on from that point. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now it goes on and contains the the remainder of the information we're going to save for our study next week. Verse 30 is talking about the wonders in heaven and on earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke, sun turned to darkness, moon to blood, uh, and the great and awesome day of the Lord. We'll focus on that again, as I said, next week. So um, when Peter quotes it, he quotes it almost word for word, as you would expect whenever you're quoting from Scripture. Is it better when you quote Scripture to quote it accurately or to just kind of um, monkey with the words however it suits your purpose to quote them? I'm asking you. When, how many of you have ever quoted Scripture to someone? Anyone? I, hope, I would hope I would see every hand. Um, I only saw a few hands. I, I guess most of us here are not that interested in quoting Scripture in our conversation. Um, when you quote, quote Scripture, it's always for us better to quote scripture accurately so much so that and there are some passages that I just know so well I could quote them to you off the top of my head but many times I'll when I want to quote a scripture to someone I'm thinking of a passage the Lord reminds me of a passage and I want to use it in a conversation in a way that's going to be beneficial or helpful to someone else I'll say hold on one moment you know nowadays of course we've got the Bible on our smartphones you know, I'll pull out my phone and I'll look up the passage just to make sure that I don't miss a word or add a word. I want to accurately represent God's word because the power in the quotation is in what God actually said, not just what I think he said or I would prefer that he said or I want him to have said. It's what he actually said that is most uh, powerful and most meaningful. So Peter does that. He quotes this passage very accurately with one exception. And it's an important exception. It's one that we're supposed to notice. He changes one portion of the quotation. Now, 
when I quote scripture, I'm not going to intentionally, if I do change it, it's accidental, it's not purposeful, and if I ever do change it, you're welcome to come up and call it to my attention so that I can apologize and correct that mistake, because it is a mistake for me to change quotations. Was it a mistake that Peter made when he changed the wording of his quotation of the prophecy of Joel? And the answer is, no, in his case, it wasn't a mistake. He gets an exception to the general rule of quoting exactly accurately, an exception that I will never have and you will never have. Why does Peter get to change the wording? And I'll point out the exact wording in just a moment. But why does he get to change the wording and you can't and I can't? Well, he's an apostle. And as he's proclaiming what he proclaims on the day of Pentecost, new scripture is being revealed. So on that day, as Peter was speaking, he wasn't, he wasn't, um, on that day he was speaking, he wasn't, with a pad, or he didn't have a secretary right next to him uh, taking dictation and writing down what he was saying. He's just speaking what we call extemporaneously. He's speaking in the moment. He's speaking as the Spirit is moving upon him and stirring him. But what he has to say, his entire sermon on the day of Pentecost is preserved for us word for word because it's, it is Scripture at the same level in the same way that Joel's prophecy is scripture. And the only difference being what Joel was speaking about was looking forward to a future day at that point that Joel was speaking, an unknown future day of fulfillment. But as Peter was speaking, he was speaking in the moment of fulfillment. And so it's only appropriate and absolutely spiritually necessary that what Peter changed needed to be changed so that we would see and understand what Peter was seeing and understanding. And that is what Joel was speaking about as a far distant future event, Peter was standing there proclaiming that event is happening right now today. All right, so what was the change? Verse 28, Joel says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I don't have time to do a whole exposition of Joel and the context, the historical context of what's going on, but very, very briefly, the children of Israel were not in a good place at the time that Joel gave his prophecy. They were struggling. And they weren't struggling like a good, healthy believer at times might struggle, just with challenging circumstances that the Lord brings into even the most faithful believer's life in order to shape them and mold them and cause them to grow in the Lord. They were struggling because they weren't in a healthy place with the Lord. They were in disobedience to the Lord and not just one bad day. How many of you, even in the last seven days, had one bad day where you were less obedient to the Lord than the other six? I mean, bad days happen even to true and faithful believers. That's not what's going on in the days of Joel. It wasn't a bad day. It wasn't a bad week. It wasn't a bad month. It was a bad time. And because it was a bad time, the Lord is always faithful to do what is ever necessary to get his people back on track. 
and what was necessary in this case was severe. Sometimes severe disobedience requires severe consequence in order to get that person back on track, or in this case, an entire nation of people back on track. And so the early portion of chapter two, and I I won't go through it, I'd encourage you to read it in your own time, is describing what the Lord had done. What the Lord done is he sent an army. The Lord had sent an army against his people, but it was an army that Israel was not prepared to fight. It was an army of locusts. And, but the terminology and the description of them is as if an army was invading the, 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 um, the land of Judea. And as that army came in, they swept through, these locusts did, and completely devastated all of the crops. They just ate up everything and left the Israelites in that location destitute. And as a result, of course, what happens when locusts in those days eat up all the crops? Starvation is going to happen. Famine is going to happen. And in those circumstances, that severe consequence, which was the Lord's judgment, he even called it my army that I sent among you. The Lord's judgment accomplished its intended purpose as the Lord's judgments always do. And it reached the hearts of his people and it caused them to remember the Lord. You know, when you're, when you're in severe famine, um, it's not that difficult to think about the Lord as it might be when, you know, you've been stuffing your belly uh, day after day after day. It's easy, somewhat easier to forget the Lord in his place in your life. Uh, you shouldn't, but that's the typical pattern that happens to people. And so the Lord got their full attention. They did turn back to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord for his mercy and the Lord graciously and mercifully forgave them and restored them, welcomed them back. And then we get to verse 28 where he says, not only have I blessed you with forgiveness, not only have I blessed you with mercy and grace, not only have I blessed you with restoration, I'm saving an even greater blessing for you, but you can't have it yet. It's like, you know, in the middle of July, blessing your child and telling them, but just wait for Christmas. I've got some special plans for you. I've got a special gift in mind. And so the special gift is described in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he goes on to describe what will happen when he does pour out his spirit. He's saying the pouring out of his spirit is the ultimate the ultimate and greatest blessing that he can give to his people and he has planned for them. But he's saying to them in Joel's day, it's a not yet circumstance. It's going to happen afterward. Now, he doesn't say, when he says afterward, he doesn't say it's going to happen in exactly so many years on such and such a date or on such and such a day on the, on the religious calendar. He just tells them, it's coming. I've planned it. I've promised it. And of course, whenever the Lord plans and promises something, what's his track record? 100% faithfulness. He's never going to fail to fulfill his promise and fulfill his purpose. And he does fulfill it, but the fulfillment is now day of Pentecost, Peter and the disciples filled with the spirit of God. So with this, we understand the only difference in Peter's quotation is in this phrase, and it shall come to pass afterwards. So let's go back to Acts 2 now.
And we're in verse 17 as Peter begins his quotation and changing the wording of the quotation. Verse 17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That phrase, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, is where Peter picks up the exact quotation of Joel's prophecy, and he continues forward all the way through verse 21 and quotes it accurately. But in verse 17 is the modification, the change to the quotation, and a necessary or needed change. Because if Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, had he quoted Joel word for word, and it shall be afterward, then he would be implying that it still hasn't yet happened. But he is standing there in front of the 3,000 gathered out of curiosity. He's standing there in the fulfillment of what Joel had said by the Spirit of God would happen. The ultimate blessing has now been experienced. At this moment, it's only been experienced out of all of Israel by 120 individuals. But before this day is over, that number is going to grow from 120 to 3,120 are going to have this same experience. So Peter adds something. Instead of saying afterward, he changes it to a present fulfillment, but he adds a phrase. It's a key phrase. It's a theological phrase. It's what we call in the study of theology an eschatological phrase. Eschatology is simply the study of the last things, how God sums up and concludes his great plans and purposes in history. But in the study of eschatology, and we've done a lot of eschatology studies together as a church, there is common debate and misunderstanding and discussion and disagreement about what certain key phrases and certain key words and certain key passages mean and when they will be fulfilled. I'm not going to take us back through the whole debate, but I just want to focus your attention on the key portion here, which is this phrase, in the last days. Now, what is clearly evident, and it's hard to argue with this, I'm certainly not going to argue with it, is that Peter apparently is convinced, believes, and declares that, w- that what's happening that day on the day of Pentecost is happening in the midst of a time period known as the last days. Peter believes there on the day of Pentecost, they are living in the last days. And so that begs a question for us. And the question is, the last days of what? And there are three basic views that differently understand the last days of what? Two of these views I'm going to give you are real biblical possibilities, meaning either one of these could be true. I, of course, have my own preference, and I'm going to tell you what my preference is as I list the three out. I'm saving my view for the last of the three that I'm mentioning. One of them is clearly an error. What's sad in terms of the wider Christian community is the one that's clearly an error is currently the most popular view among Christians. And I'm talking about not just 
the Christians in this room. I'm talking about true believers worldwide. How many true believers are there worldwide? I don't know. Millions upon millions that truly know the Lord and have been taught about Bible prophecy and about key phrases like this one, the last days. But sadly, many have been taught the wrong perspective, kind of wrenching key concepts out of their original context in order to fit a system of eschatology and theology that is not actually established by the passages in view. And I don't want to do that. You've heard me reference before the difference in, and these are theological terms, the difference between what's called in theology and the interpretation of scripture, exegesis and eisegesis. And these are just two Greek words and they simply mean, exegesis means you read the text and you read out of the text only what's actually in the text. You don't add anything to it. You don't take anything away from it. Eisegesis means you read the text and you read into it what you want to find there. You kind of, you kind of insert your own ideas into the text so that you can make the words mean what fits your own pre-established conclusions. All of us, I'll just say this, all of us are vulnerable to the second way of reading scripture. I'm not saying we all do that. I'm just saying we're all vulnerable to doing that. And I have done that before in my 40-something years of reading God's word, studying God's word, only for the Lord to later correct my reading into a passage, what I wanted to see there, and then him proving to me by the comparison of other passages, you can't make that conclusion. You can't draw that conclusion from that passage. And then having to humbly submit to the clear evidence in God's word. So here are the three views. I'm going to give you the first one is the one in error, and then the last two are both possible. The first view sees the last days as referring to, in a sense, on the day of Pentecost, just a brief preview, but that really the emphasis of Joel's prophecy and even Peter's quotation of that prophecy is pointing still to the far distant future of the day that these events were happening. That the last days refers really to the days just before the second coming of Christ. And so that you'll hear this commonly referred to in casual Christian conversation and and in Bible study circles of people that hold that view. Um, You'll hear references to we today. You and I are living in the last days, but people in the 1900s or the people in the 1800s or people in the 1700s or people in the 1600s that knew the Lord and loved the Lord and walked with the Lord, they could not possibly have been living in the last days because they weren't living in the time frame immediately leading up to the second coming of Christ. Now that view is clearly in error. Why is it clearly in error? Because Peter is quoting this passage from Joel and saying In essence, what Joel talked about is happening today and it has just happened to us. It's been fulfilled. So much so that he says in verse 16, look back up in verse 16 of Acts 2. This is Peter speaking. He's speaking under 
the immediate influence of the Holy Spirit, having just been filled with the Spirit, he is speaking under what Paul later calls the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says this, and he's talking about the events of that day, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. I like the way the old King James translation emphasized it, uses a slightly different word. He says, this is that which Joel was referring to or declaring. Now, when Peter says, it's happening, what Joel talked about is happening today, it emphasizes that this, the focus here is not 2,000 years yet in the future. The focus is the events of that day. And we dare not miss that emphasis that Peter is making. So I'm just going to throw out that idea that the last day's reference is primarily about the events leading up to the second coming. Now, is the second coming going to happen? Yes. Will the final days before the Lord comes be their own version of last days? Of course. If, if the second coming ends history, then there will be last days of history that immediately precede the second coming. That's without dispute. That's without debate. I believe in last days leading up to the second coming. That's just not what Joel's talking about. It's just not what Peter's talking about on the day of Pentecost here. How can I know that with certainty? There's only five passages, five in the entire New Testament that use the exact phrase, the last days. You'd think in such an important topic, there might be 50 of them, but there's only five places where it occurs. I'm, for those who are taking notes that want to check this out on your own, I'll give you the five. We won't have time to look at all five of them today. Second Timothy chapter three, verses one through six, Paul uses the phrase, the last days. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. James uses the phrase, the last days. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 3. Peter uses the phrase, not just on the day of Pentecost, but later writing his letter of 2 Peter, years later, uses the phrase, the last days. Then Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, the one we're currently studying. And then the only other one is Paul writing in the book of Hebrews, uh, verses, uh, uh, verse 2 of chapter 1. Now, you've got the testimony of Peter, James, and Paul all using the same phrase, and they use it in the exact same way. And in every one of these five cases, and I will, if needed, go to the wall in discussion and debate with anyone that questions this conclusion. In all five cases, they're addressing current events. They're addressing things that were happening right then, that were being fulfilled right then. All right, so the first idea, last days, is only talking about the second coming. No, certainly not what Peter's talking about on the day of Pentecost. Second view, this one is possible. I don't agree with it, but many, many good, solid Bible prophecy teachers, and, and I'm talking about Bible prophecy teachers that I mostly agree with, I'll hold to this second view. This is the second most widely held view on the meaning of the last days. And that is the last days refers not to a short and abbreviated time period before some great and climactic final event, but the last days refers to a last era of history, of redemptive and biblical history. And in that view, the last days refers to the day of Pentecost 
is the start of it, the start of what we call the last days, and it leads all the way up to the second coming of Christ. So whatever, in, and we don't know how long that time period is going to be, because we don't know when the Lord is going to return in his second coming, but however long that ends up being, whether so far 2,000 years of church history, or whether it ends up being two, you know, 2,000 years beyond now, or even more, however long that's going to be, that is, in their view, the last days. It's referring to an era of history. Now, I, I get why they say that. I understand what, they, what they're saying, because essentially what they're saying is history has changed. History's tra- changed dramatically. All the prior eras of world history had their own story, but Christ coming into the world, being born, dying on the cross, rising again from the dead, ascending back to heaven, now ruling over history from the throne of God, pouring out his spirit, empowering his church, uh, the, 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 uh, the great momentum of the, the outflow of the gospel from the church throughout all of the nations of the world and throughout all of the days of church history, that whole era is now the last days. And we're meant to kind of live our lives, every day of our lives, with the perspective that the end could come. The only issue I have with that view is that it still is interpreting the use of the phrase the last days in relationship to the second coming. And while again, there is last days connected to the second coming, is that how these five passages use the phrase and I see it used in a completely different way. So the third option, the one that I hold to, is the idea that the last days is referring to the last days of the old covenant. And you have heard me teach this before, so I don't want to go through the entire study again, but essentially what we have identified is that the Lord deals with generations of history, redemptive history. And we saw the key use In fact, let's just jump back there for a moment to, um, in our study through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 23. This is a culminating portion of Scripture just at the beginning of the final week of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus before he goes to the cross. And we're going to look at um, Matthew chapter 23, starting in... Uh, verse 34. The Lord speaking, this whole chapter is a pronunciation of a sequence, you might remember, of seven judgments that the Lord proclaims upon the unbelieving city of Jerusalem, the city that has, uh, that has uh, refused to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah and Lord. And he says, therefore, I send prophets, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you, on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. And then this key phrase that Jesus uses to get their full attention. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then skipping down to chapter 24, verse 34, he uses it a second time in what we know as the Olivet Discourse, the 
the judgment being pronounced upon this, this generation of disobedient and rebellious Israel. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The question is, when did that generation start? The generation started in 30 AD. It started at the beginning of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus. When does that generation end? The generation ends in the great climactic judgment events that unfold as Jesus predicted and described in great detail. We went through this chapter uh, in great detail together in, in chapter 24 of Matthew. It it culminates in the events that we call 70 AD, which was the, the reconquest of the city of Jerusalem by the Roman legions and the destruction of the temple and uh, the forever change of Israel's religious relationship with the Lord. Because all the generations from Moses till 70 AD was centered around God's house, the temple of God centered around the Levitical priesthood as mediators, centered around the animal sacrifices that the Lord had provided under the law of Moses. And all of that is going away in 70 AD. The temple is no longer going to be standing. The Levitical priesthood is going to be executed by the Romans. The animal sacrifice system is coming to an end. And in 70 AD forward, it never reappears again in history. All of those things are culminating in the events uh, that are now unfolding, marked by the, the starting point, so to speak, on the day of Pentecost. So heading back to Acts 2, and we'll end our study here for today. And uh, there's a few other details that I will, I'll, uh, in two weeks, Lord willing, I'll touch on, which is, what is it talking about with uh, the young men seeing visions and the... the um, the, the um, older men dreaming dreams and, and all of those things. We'll touch on that uh, as we go on into the other signs that are mentioned. But here Peter says in verse 17, or verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So if I'm correct that what's happening here is that Peter is referencing the last days of the old covenant, he is signaling that the day of Pentecost plays an exceptionally important role in God's revelatory purposes of how he is transitioning his relationship with humanity from an old covenant relationship to a new covenant relationship in Christ focused on Christ, centered on Christ. The temple has gone away. Now the church is functioning as the house of God. The Levitical priesthood has gone away. Now Christ as priest, heavenly high priest, is the only one through whom we can find a true relationship with God as he is the one mediator from that point forward between God and man. And that the infilling of the church on the day of Pentecost is the great signal from God that the last days have now begun. And those days are going to carry through an entire generation of history to the events of 70 AD. And then we move beyond that into the fullness of the new covenant as it becomes clear and evident that only this new covenant relationship with God is the avenue through which we can have such a relationship with the Lord. All right, we will uh, stop our study there today. Lord willing, pick it up in two weeks, continuing 
um, how Peter applies Joel's prophecy to the events of that day. And uh, let's sing one more song of worship. <laughs>